This is the Suburb of Trends episode with a difference. We're going to delve into the dark side of property data. How can data be misused? What are the shortcomings of relying on data without understanding context? And when and how can data become a red herring? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today our resident data geek, Kent Lardner, is joining me to share some really important lessons that he's learnt about the dangers in data. Now, your journey has been quite an interesting one, Kent. You've been... Well, you've had decades of experience in property statistics, and yet recently you've been given a bit of an inside look into another side of the property industry. What have you learnt about data and how it is being used in some quarters? Yes, I think uh, I'm taking a lot of inspiration from a from a book that's written in the 1950s, and it's called <laughs> "How How to Lie with." with statistics i don't know if you can see that okay and what i've what i've been observing is a number of these issues are, are surfacing in our industry and specifically we've got a number of buyers agents out there which is a new industry as you know you're a buyers agent and i'm seeing some of the best practice you could imagine and some of the not so best practice you can imagine with the way data's um, being applied and I think one of the uh, the conundrum that I think a lot of people face is um, if you don't sell a property, you don't make any money. So it's a bit of a bit of a challenge. So you know, if you there's certain things you can say or not say about a market um, that you probably you know should be 100% transparent on. But if you uh, if you omit a few things, uh, suddenly it looks good. Mm, now you're being very cynical, Kent. <laughs> now. <laughs> Finally, okay, so let's, for starters, let's go to that book, um, How to Lie with Statistics. I've actually downloaded a copy and I've started reading it. It's a fascinating read, written in 1954. And yes. um, it's an easy read too. It's actually, you'd think it'd be dry as, you know, I'm not going to say <laughs> What I might say <laughs> no, you can't. That's the wrong podcast. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's some of his trolls. Um, oh, my God. Uh, yes. Anyway, you've distracted me there. So... Yeah, very interesting though, because the thing is that, you know, property data or any data really can be sliced and diced in, in many different ways and, and it all depends on your intention as well as to, politicians are great with this, let's face it, you know, they, they are very adept at, at um, using and misusing data to further their case. And I guess what we're talking here, let's put this massive elephant in the room, really. I'm a buyer's agent and I'm, you know, definitely can see the value in people using a buyer's agent. So when you get that expertise and you buy better as a result of it and you buy a better asset in, in years to come, you'll be hundreds of thousands of dollars better off for the because you've actually hired expertise. However, there has been a low barrier to entry for buyers agents um, for many, many years, and it's something that I've railed against. And now we've got a hot market where buyers have, you know, understandably 
looking for an edge. And so there's this rise of the buyer's, market, the buyer's agent. And so buyers are out there going, right, well, if I'm struggling in this market and I've got FOMO because I can see prices rising and I, and I want to buy something and I don't want to miss out, I need an edge. It's sort of natural to go, okay, I'm going to go and get a buyer's agent. And the problem is that not all buyer's agents are equal. But there's no. also two different types of buyer's agents, sort of broadly speaking. There's the local specialist, and then you've got your sort of your your, your more data-driven buyer's agent, your sort of your, your borderless investor. And mm. some of those can be great, you know, but there's limitations with that too. And I guess what you're talking about here is the borderless investors in particular um, may or may not be good buyer's agents. They may or may not be misusing data to create markets. They may or may not be use, misusing data to justify why something somewhere is a good place to buy. Um, in much the same way spruikers have done um, in the years gone by, in fact, still do. So can you please... Now that you've actually found yourself wading in the murky waters of this end of the property market, can you give us some stories, some give us some examples about what can be what can be positioned as data but can be very, very misleading? Because I think people need to understand and be much more discerning before they actually engage a buyer's agent, you know, by not falling for this stuff because it's very, very compelling and it's beautifully packaged. Well, there's a few elephants. Uh, in the room here. I think the first one is what I omit, what I choose not to share with the client, what I choose not to educate them on so I can offload the property. I think the second and probably the biggest elephant in the room that I've uncovered or you know become aware of in the last 24 months is the industry growth rate, this phenomenal growth rate, which has become the Kool-Aid that everyone is drinking. And I think the biggest problem we have is as a result of this phenomenal growth, you could you can pick average, you could pick below average, you could pick above average pro- uh, properties or locations, and they've all grown. Mm. And as a result of that, you become caught up in your own success and your own importance and uh, you know, effectively <laughs> believing that you are, are now suddenly... Uh, you've gone from a property expert and um, now I can badge myself and say I'm now a research and data expert because look at the results and I'm seeing a flurry of this. So, you know, last week I was a, a, a pretty good buyer's agent, but today I decided I'm now a research analyst um, because I've got 12 properties or because I've just you know sold uh, 20 or 30 properties in the last whatever months. It's sort of, can I just cut in for a sec there? Because it's sort of interesting. You're using the word sold. Now, as a buyer's agent, I always really stress that we buy, we don't sell. Mm. Um, and it's funny because I remember when I was filming the show, you know, location, 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 also relocation, relocation. And that was a, an interesting change of language that we had to work with, you know, the crew to say, we're not selling property guys because they'd be going yeah we sold one i'm like no we didn't sell we bought however i think a lot of buyers agents are actually selling property to their clients rather than buying them for their clients and i and so even the fact that you're using that language sort of says something to me and that is alarming because if they're pitching something to sell it unfortunately there's this barrier that the consumer has so when a consumer is dealing with a sales agent at least you know they're selling something Mm. And you're not paying them, you know, so therefore your expectation shouldn't be that they're helping, well, they're helping you only in so far that they actually sell the property. But when you're paying a buyer's agent and the worst ones double dip, you know, um, so they get money from developers as well as, you know, um, 
But when you're paying a buyer's agent, the assumption is that they're representing your best interests. However, some do actually effectively sell off stock lists. And I mean, that's just one example, I guess. So I, I, I want to just draw that out because it is a real issue in this industry that we don't have, um, there's not enough regulation and clarity around really what a buyer's agent shouldn't, shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I think there's um, some moral dilemmas here. And, you know, one of the biggest ones is uh, that if I don't make that transaction, if I don't make the purchase, I don't make any money. And I think that's driving just so much of our society, not just the buyer's mm. agent, selling agents. It's this gig economy and, and it's creating some really interesting behaviours. I'm being diplomatic, but, you know, I think that's it's the sad part of it is, um, you know, there are those morally high standard BAs that we know of that, um, sacrifice income because they can't find a property that matches mm. the requirements of their client. And I know these people and these ones are falling to the background. They're not having the success of the higher profile mm. ones that, you know, make good coin, then spend that coin on self-promotion, win, win awards, self-perpetuated, you know, <laughs> self-congratulations. And, and, and I think the cycle is dangerous and, I, and there's a lot of this going on. And I think the, 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 going back to the buyer's agents and the two types of buyer's agents as well is um, there's, there's an increase in the uh, borderless profile of buyer's agents right now. And uh, people come in and you, you'd know it. They say, go and buy four or five properties mm. for me. And there's, there's, there's a lot of money flowing through and, and some big decisions on portfolios. And some of them are rather questionable, some of the locations, because over the last 12 months, there's been some fascinating learnings for me. I, you know, and you're still learning all the time. But one of them is you've got to be very, very careful of some of these geographies, because if, they, if it's surrounded by green and there's no real you know, natural landlocked barriers, these markets in the last 12 months haven't had massive growth. They've had growth, good mm. growth. But what's it going to look like when supply picks up, when building approvals ramp up because of inland rail or or interest rates increase? And mm. I think the other bigger challenge that I'm seeing is, as someone who's been in this industry for a, a few decades now, um, I've seen something called interest rate rises. <laughs> I, I know it goes back a long way, but you yeah, know, the I've old seen, days. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen I've seen downturns in. Uh, the, the the housing market downturns in the economy increases in in uh, unemployment rate and so you know a lot of the, the you know coming from the mortgage insurance side of things you I got to see the worst of the worst mm. and you became rather risk averse that language that mindset uh, it doesn't exist with many people that I'm running into or you know meeting in the industry yeah. And that is the thing. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I was, somebody told me about this sort of real estate guru who's on YouTube and got a huge following and, and, and I watched one of his videos and he was bragging about the fact that he'd been, you know, I'm going to bring to you my seven years of experience. Seven. And seven. <laughs> and I'm like, that's half a cycle. <laughs> you haven't actually experienced everything it's ex- yet. Um, it's exactly my point. <laughs> but that's one guy. And then another one, I, I was alarmed at this, this real brag video I saw. I've been doing this for one year and it was like about you know how many millions of dollars worth of property i've purchased how many you know dozens and dozens of people that i've helped and and i'm like 
one year experience and it's like where's your track record who cares about a track record because everyone seems to be the the the, the aim is acquisition and they seem to think that then everything just does its job you know and, and it's like that's just the beginning and if you stuff that up then you've actually undermined everything that you really want for your future and it's that that awareness of the risk and I guess taking away that transactional um, it's that transactional focus that's real alarming and I guess that's what you're saying that you're you're let's get back to the data question here because I guess how does the miss how can data be misused to support that type of business model yeah I think there's, there's a few uh, call outs the, the, the biggest one is omitting certain information so if I'm and I, I, I won't pick on a certain location or a suburb but uh, there, there may be a location there's a, which which the property looks fantastic looks great good rental yield etc but the inventory levels might be very very high or the historical growth rates very very low um, but it's in an area where it's easily accessed and there's a lot of house on there. There's a lot. That's not a unique <laughs> example. So how is that pitched, though? How, how how would a scenario like that, rather than sort of focusing on the danger signs, what what are the positives that would be pulled Only out of that? Only pick on the positive. The positive yeah. would be cash flow, new, depreci- you know, good, good depreciation schedule, mm. accessible. And you, so you can cherry pick the good data. There'll always be good data points you know mm-hmm. if you know so yeah prices are going down one way to repackage that is um yields are going up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you okay. can repackage it so i think that but I, I i identified a really interesting case study this is kind of born of seeing a lot of people who you know have have lucked out by buying one or two properties um and suddenly now they're they're experts on, on all fronts including data and research and you know They've not done any units of study of statistics or not, you know, not spent years in, in the muck, which is property data. And I've come up with a case study and I thought this would be an interesting one. And what I've done is I've measured um, the same thing four different ways. And what right. I've done is I've, I've, I've looked at uh, over 350 odd uh, SA3 markets, which we talk about a lot. Mm. And I've uh, with the objective of saying, is the market cooling? Mm. Okay, so... Uh, across the country, treating it as 350 different housing markets. Um, I've measured it four different ways. Now, the first, what I've done, the first one is I've looked at the uh, median asking price, but on a rolling 90-day sample. Mm-hmm. So that's the first approach. So there's a few different ways. You kind of look at what are you measuring and how you're measuring it and all those things. Uh, there are so many ways you can slice and dice and measure the data, your measurement systems, what you're measuring, the area, the time, mm. how you sample. So the first one was asking price, um, uh, asking price median over a 90-day window for the SA3. Uh, the second one I looked at, second measurement, was the sold price. Well, this was an agent-advised mm-hmm. agent advised sale uh, in a rolling 90-day period by the SA3. So that's the method two. Uh, method three is listings again, but we're now doing a 12-month rolling average, which is common and commonly used at a suburb level because the samples are so small, yep. but not necessary, uh, not always necessary at the SA3 level because you've got bigger sample sizes yep. in the SA3s. Yep. And then measure four was the sold price again, but again, the difference being a rolling 12-month window. Here's the fascinating thing. Same same everything, just the, the sampling uh, different, the measurement, um, same SA3 measures. 
Measure one, 12% of markets are now cooling is the headline. Okay, 12%. That was measure right. one. And that's based on asking price over that's a 90 day rolling. Over a 90 yep. day. Headline number two, 28% of markets are now cooling. And that's based on sold price over the sold 90 days. Sold prices over 90 day. Mm-hmm. Headline number three, 1% of markets cooling. So that's based on a huge sample over a year. Which is di- it dilutes the short-term mm. effect over the effect yep. that you're dealing with a la- much larger sample. Mm-hmm. And measure four is 2% of markets cooling. Right. So What's more reliable? Y- well, I- I'm going to go for measure two here mm. because what I've done and the lesson I've learned is don't look at a single measure. Walk around the market, walk around the data sets and look at supporting evidence. So what mm. I do is I say, look, um, there's always the anecdotal feedback you get. That's that's I listen to it, but then that triggers a, a measurement. So I'm measuring uh, inventory levels. I'm looking at our listing starting to bump up, our, uh, our inventory levels starting to bump up as well, and some other variables. But they're the biggies, right? They're the big datas. You know, so effectively looking at uh, does inventory support it and listings volume starting to creep up days or market as well in many markets. So. They're the things. And when, ev- when you weigh up all that evidence, uh, I would go with measure two, which tells me, and there's some common sense here, uh, it's a sole price. So I mm. don't have to pick, do I pick the, the middle? There's not that human bias of an asking price. Mm. Yeah. So the actual sole prices, the agent advised sales, uh, and it's at an SA3 level, therefore the samples are generally large enough. And the 90 days, because the 90 days is more representative of today than the the big 12 months. So the evidence would suggest that 28% of the markets across Australia are starting to cool. That's right now? That's right now. And so we're recording this in November, -November. mid-November. We're probably not going to bring this to air for a couple of months, (laughs) only because I've got it all lined up. Um, I think, no, December, I think we're going to to bring this to air. So that's going to be really interesting, actually. Okay, so Mm. you're saying that right now, 28% of the markets across Australia are showing some signs of cooling over a 90-day rolling average. And so that takes us back to what month? We're in November, uh, August. So it's from August to now. What... Literally last night, I, I do a, week, a monthly little webinar on what's happening in the local Sydney market for my clients, and and just last night I did it, uh, really looking at sort of where things are at right now, and we have seen in Sydney uh, certainly there's you know and like you say walking around the data, right? so I look at CoreLogic data, the Hedonic Index, and see what that's doing compared to how it's done in other months. And the like house growth was only one and a half percent, I think, um, 1.6%, I think it was for the month, which is ridiculous because that's actually a huge growth rate for a month. <laughs> but in March, it was 4.3. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, March was a horrible month for buying property. It was awful, right? So um, the other thing I look at is clearance rates. So clearance rates now versus a month ago, they were in the 80s. They were in the 80s for 11 weeks running and, and they've been now in the 70s for three weeks running. So that's that's something. The number of um, bidders at auction. So that's something that that's a measure that we can get hold of. That's gone from being 10.1 down to seven. Um, so there are all these other 
factors that you can say, right, so like you're saying, it's, it's walking around the data, it's more than one metric to say, you know what, none of these is an, a, a blip or a bomb or, or a, um, not abomination, what's the word? <laughs> an anomaly. <laughs> yes. The way we people, love our anomalies. The way people often use it is an abomination. Um, yeah, interesting. So let's, I guess, watch that space. One thing that I'm interested in, though, is, you know, and this is something that I've railed against with some buyers agents over the years, where they'll they'll pick a location that they're basically going to start recommending to their clients. Now, these are the borderless ones, right? And so they'll pick a location and then they start buying there. And of course, if they don't have a local specialist, you know, when you talk to local buyers agents who then start watching these out of area, often interstate buyers agents swooping in and start buying stock, they or the local buyers agents without fail will be like, oh my God, they're buying that crap that none <laughs> of the locals want. And sales agents will say the same thing. They're like, yeah, this is brilliant, you know. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, what is it? It's payday. You know, for all the poor buggers that have been sitting on these properties, have been doing nothing for years, and because someone's decided that some data can be sort of put together, or they've recognised some signs of early shoots, or whatever that whatever the reason is. And mm. sometimes it could be legitimate. You know, sometimes it could be that there is some growth to come, and all the the factors are you know are there, and and it's been underperforming for a while, but for good reasons. Other times it can be manufactured a little bit. And so what I'm keen to understand from you is how does that manifest? How can this data be manufactured to, in some cases, even create a market that really shouldn't exist? I think it starts with actually you know, winning over a client who trusts you and then effectively mm. just feeding them properties and, and, and having conversations without necessarily giving methodical comparisons of area A, area B, which is the approach I like to take is to say, look, there's two or three things. I do a radar and I say, look, there's a couple of things here that aren't quite right um, when you look at a, a suite of metrics. And then what you do is you compare and contrast that to your other options. So the question more is, um, you know, I, am I having that conversation with my client and only presenting one option or am I presenting multiple options and then doing that with quality use of data because I can cherry pick mm. you know and I guess that's what probably I'm going to go back I'm going to pull up the the my my little book here but yep. the chapter yep. one's all about the bias mm. and it's all about so effectively what I can do is I can the bias that I can impose on my client and on use of data is to ignore certain measures mm. and that might be ignoring measures of the property in the suburb that I'm showing or the area that I'm showing or <clears throat> um, just not not compare and contrast and put side by side two different um, locations or m more than two locations. So I think that's probably the first one, and that's chapter one. That's like in this book, this 1954 book was called out. Is that 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 bias that can be applied here, and and, and I'm seeing a lot of it. So the the problem, of course, you said there's 350 markets in Australia. You know, there's what 15,000 suburbs or something. I mean, it, it's it's if an investor in particular, because this is sort of more in the investor space. Of course, you, you're not going to see an owner occupier go to one of these borderless <laughs> borderless no. buyers agents that says, you know, oh, where should I live? Um, it, but it's you know, where should I buy an investment property? Is a very common question, which is uh, you know, Megan and I are running it. 
by the time this goes through, we'll have run <laughs> yes. a, a live workshop to teach first home buyers uh, who were rent vesting this these you know how to understand the data that's important and a methodical process you need to go through in order to actually um, work out the answer to where you should start looking and then the data's not enough the data then becomes that's your beginning you know it's a, it's a meaty it's a, it's quite labor intensive and and you need to understand what it is that you're looking at and why and then you've got to get out there and learn the local the local nuances so you don't become one of those people that fly in and buy the crap that nobody else wants um so i can't remember where i was going with that question <laughs> i've just sort of gone on my rant so you know th there is a um so back to the bias of course humans let's face it you've got two problems with bias agents one one is that you've got the borderless who you know coming at it from data data driven and and therefore you've got a client that potentially may not be as data savvy as they should be or they're just overwhelmed or 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 you know busy or whatever and they're outsourcing this then you've got someone like me who actually is you know I, i'm fairly agile with statistics and i sort of get out all works and i did it at uni although i have to confess i almost failed it but um you know, so I've got a fair amount of literacy and I look at these data tables and I go, oh, I get overwhelmed, hmm. you know, and I've got a high level of knowledge and understanding in this, right? So then you've got this, you, you need it to be distilled and packaged up so that it actually makes it digestible. Um, yep. But at the same time, if you don't actually understand what's being left out and you can't actually notice and recognise those things, then you are totally at the mercy of who's delivering you that information and why, back to the bias, right? A local buyer's agent will be equally biased because they don't have the big picture. They don't know the other alternatives. And, of course, if you decide that you're not going to buy in their local area, they don't get any money because they can only help you in their local area. And I know this in my business in Good Deeds. It is if someone comes to me and, and really and truly it's not right for them to be buying in Sydney and in our neck of the woods, then, you know, I'm a rare buyer's agent will actually suggest that they look elsewhere. And, you know, but I honestly, there's not many like me, let's face it. I'm a bit weird. I'm a bit one of those people that foregoes money um, rather than actually give bad advice. We are a small subset of this market, unfortunately. And so back to people looking for advisors and looking for data to support whatever decisions they make, there's a real temptation to outsource your decision making to say that, well, I feel good about that and I feel that that's safer because it's backed by data. But that's the danger, isn't it? If you don't know, one of the biggest risks, and I think this goes right back to the first um, podcast episode that you and I ever did on this topic, was the misuse of medians, uh, mm. which is really the suburb level median. And, you know, as we've just seen from that example, if I use that rolling 12 month, I can portray it as a big double digit growth rate for said suburb. Uh, however, if I take it as, at a 90 day SA1, there's a good chance that 20 or 30% of these areas are going to start to have rather subdued growth rates now. And I think this is, there's going to be a big call out there. I think there'll be quite a reckoning because as I, as I said, the, the cook, everyone's been drinking the Kool-Aid of high market growth over the last two years and that's starting to fade uh, and suddenly you know the, the hero that you thought you were 
Um, mm. You know, you, you may find it a little bit of a challenge and, and, and it will start to get harder to be discerning. How do I pick area A or suburb A over mm. suburb B? And I'm looking forward to that day myself because, <laughs> well, it's created an interesting challenge because uh, all those leading indicators of, of inventory and vacancy rates, well, what do you do when everywhere has a very, 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 very low level of inventory? Everywhere looks good. Um, and mm. how you, what you need to apply new data sets and new validations and new filters. But if in, inventory levels start to rise and things start to get back to air quotes normal, I'm looking forward to that day because suddenly um, if you're putting in the effort into the data, you know, the, the cream will rise. So I guess what you're saying there is that because prices are rising pretty much everywhere across the country, except for maybe inner city um, apartments, Sydney, Melbourne and hmm. Brisbane, that everyone's making money. And so there's that nuance of the understanding that, you know, someone's made 10%, someone else has made 30. What's the difference between the 10% gain and the 30% gain in, in, a, in a where the average might be 25? Um, the 10% is a real poor performer, but it feels good to whoever got 10% growth. And so rising markets mask poor performance whereas falling market you know it's that thing about what the, the tide goes out and you can see who's swimming without their knickers on that exposes um those uh less um robust decisions shall we say yes but they won't be um shouting their losses from the rooftops or you know effectively i can take my 10 percent growth or my five percent growth and wrap that in mm. some po positive um social media posts so I think that, you know, that's, it's going to be a really interesting time. But to your point about the local BA, I've always had a vision uh, looking at the democratisation of data that happened with Expedia in the travel sector mm. or the democratisation of house prices with Zillow, which mm. then flowed onto Australia and having a <clears throat> price estimate for houses. And it's suddenly it now is you know, putting power in, in the hands of consumers. Uh, it is my belief um, that that layer of location research and the tools to identify and measure uh, is in the process of being democratised in Australia. So, you know, a lot of the researchers who held that close to their chest as, you know, this is my specialty, I think that'll be challenged in much the same way as Expedia challenged the travel sector. Ooh, so this is an interesting sort of twist. So you're suggesting that if, and, and I guess, you know, you're pushing your own barrier here, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's, that, that was my dream. And it was driven by, it was driven by, I've always had this bias towards a local bias agent. Mm. Oh, because, I do too. Right? Yeah. And so I'll, I'll be very clear about that mm. bias. Um, and I thought, okay, the problem for the local bias agent is generally they know every street and they know the houses and they know every nuance about every suburb in, a, in an entire SA3 or LGA or whatever. Uh, but they aren't competing against these high-profile borderless investor class. And so there, therein lay the issue, whereas if you lift that analysis layer, that selection layer, and democratise that layer, then I find the regions that are best for me based on data and some of my own preferences. Mm. And I can distill that down to two or three suburbs or two or three regions or areas and then talk to each of the local BAs in each. Mm. So it changes the dynamics of how 
investors start to engage with buyers agents because you get the best i believe there's a better outcome to be had so uh and this is something that you and i've spoken about quite a lot obviously because i agree that you i think to get the most out of a buyer's agent you do need a local specialist because the local specialist is going to help you choose that asset that is better than others in the area so that will perform better because there are characteristics that are unique to every area and and I know that traveling around the country I had to sort of come up to speed on a lot of things and how do I find out how do I sort of shortcut to get this stuff I I could never be as good as a local buyers agent and so often I taught when I was doing the show that is I talked to local buyers agents to get their insights because they've got years and years and years of experience you can't quickly get that you can't quickly pick that up you can sort of got your little antennas out knowing what you should be what you need to notice but that that ingrained that really valuable knowledge is just not there the problem is of course that if an investor goes to a local buyer's agent and says you know i want to invest the local buyer's agent really and i know this in my own business as i said to you this is the weakness of a local buyer's agent is they're not able to actually generally give you greater advice and advice on a on a grander scale and this is one of the big problems in property anyway um just or just in the investment space, not just the property space. You talk about the democratisation of, of data in property. In financial planning, for instance, the regulations and the the, the cost of compliance and the cost of um, qualification, I've probably got all the words wrong, but um, in the financial planning space means that it's got to a point where lower income earners or people on the beginning of their career journey who really don't have high uh, disposable income to invest effectively can't afford to get good financial guidance because it's not in the fi- a good financial planner's interests to worry about the rats and mice clients because they're basically their cost of, of opening their doors basically is so high that they are forced in a way for good business to just go for high net worth people right mm. so those that uh, beginning their investment journey are then forced to go out there to scalable models to try to get investment advice and so you know that's that's the fact right and so in much the same way with with property that and i often say to people is property really the the, the right vehicle for you to be investing in have you explored other vehicles and the problem is where do they go to get the guidance? Because mm. basically it's not, it's not cost effective for, for good financial planners to actually provide that guidance. So we've got a real problem in this country in terms of helping people actually move along this, this investment journey, whether it is they're investing in property or anything else. Mm. Um, but in the property space, when you do invest in one property, you're lumping all of your eggs in that basket for that period of time. And that's risky. And then in a way that a lot of people like seek to to spread that risk is to say, okay, well, I'm going to buy four cheap ones instead of one good one. What, in all in the same suburb? Well, potentially, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, spreading their risk. But so, so and, and unfortunately, that all then feeds into this type of buyer's agent who's sets up an investment plan <laughs> for them to buy multiple property. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you can just see how people are, are actually genuinely looking to get guidance and get the right advice, and the people giving it probably don't know much more than them. It's just that they've actually just managed to get data and effectively misuse it. And so that's, I guess, you know, your little awakenings around what can happen with this, and I know that you've, you've it's really bothering you, 
that's why I thought we should have a talk about this because I, I don't really know the answer yet. I really don't. I'd like to. Um, I'll put it out there. Anyone's got some answers, I think it starts with actually identifying some, some issues, and, and I can see it. And if you follow some hashtags on Instagram or whatever, you see this en masse. You mm. see what people are posting out, and you learn some behaviours pretty quick. So I think that's, but I, I've listed down a few seven key observations mm-hmm. that I've been that that you know I've been picking up on. Probably the first one is that, um, you know, there's a there's a, a conundrum there because a buyer's agent has an incentive to find a property, mm. and the bulk aren't like you or my mate Brendan down the road, who ignore or will effectively say no. Mm rather than say yes and push a property that's not quite right. Mm. And you're the minority. Yeah. And so I think that's probably the, the, the biggie. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I don't think the, the risks are being truly portrayed. I don't think so. You, know, you go back to when you, if you study statistics, you, you're taught how to um, uncover or certainly paint the picture of all the uncertainties and make sure you frame up that there are uh, inadequacies in data, there are inadequacies in measurements and conclusions, and you frame it up quite professionally. That's the first thing they drum into you. And I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing this language that's bold and forceful. And Yeah, it's like I've heard, I've heard that too. It's like, guys, this is recency bias on steroids. It's like... It was only a couple of years ago when prices were falling and mm. it was all doom and gloom and, and, you know, last person out shut the door sort of thing. Um, whereas now it's like prices can't fall. Yes, they can fall. Guys, it, it's actually not that long ago. Just just watch interest rates go up half a percent and, and we'll have the conversation. Mm. So, okay, there's two things in your seven. Or so, yeah, yep. so the next one... Um, I, I guess the, the rise, I'm reading off my screen here, so I'm looking up so I don't, because I didn't memorise it all, but the rise <laughs> of the property expert. Um, and I, I think that the, the, the rise of the expert who is his drinking the Kool-Aid of every market's growing. And because of that, you know, this, this obsession with house price and house price growth that's in mm. the media, um, you can bang your own drum and you can bang it loud and you look good. So that's probably the, the other one, this, this hero worship um, that's, that's really coming on the back of, I've picked these properties, they've grown by 15%. Yeah, but so did everywhere so everything. else. Yeah. Right. Is so. that relativity? I mean, I've actually done that exercise with clients where, you know, we have gone back and actually reviewed their portfolio over many years and compared. And it's I know it's got failings, this methodology, and you'll probably cut it to shreds but that's all right you can do that because i'm here to learn but you know and i would say right what you know we do an appraisal um using the same methodology we did when we actually purchased the property to say right what's a reasonable expectation on price in today's market for that property so then factor up what's the gross rate and then compare that to medians for um the same type of property in that suburb right Mm. and so has it been more or less hopefully more usually more um very rarely less, very rarely less, um, which is great because that's actually my marker of success. But the thing is that um, then I do look to make those medians statistically significant and I do try to make them relevant. So like if it's a two-bedroom apartment for argument's sake in that suburb and, and over a 12-month period when I'm, I'm comparing uh, in terms of the, the sales data, I like to see other 100 sales in there. 
that's sort of my benchmark, right? Mm. You know, if there's only three or four or ten or whatever, it's just not enough. Like, um, and also if I'm looking at all apartments in an area where you've got big, huge apartments with water views and you've got studios in the same suburb, that's not no good either. So, yeah. that, and, I mean, and the, like units, you know, the problem with units is um, a lot of the prices are dominated by new stock. Well, that's it too. And then so you've got to sort of weed all that out of it. So when we do it, you know, I'm, I'm very, very mindful of what can skew and what can make us look better or worse, you know. And, and I, so I really, you have to, what I actually do, we, we do our, our reappraisal of the property and first, then we do that comparison and we don't alter anything. Yeah. It's, it's oh, look, I, th- I think the best way, to, if you're looking to value an individual property, is do a CMA, but do it through time. So you effectively, your bias to how you select comps today is the same bias and how you select comps from a year ago. Yeah. Therefore, if you do it now and you do it then, you've got a pretty good gauge on 12 months change. Um, my third one was more, um, if I were to, I don't call myself a, a, a property expert because I think it's a bit ludicrous to think that he's this data geek that, that, that swims in property data and has done for over 20-something years. Um, that doesn't make me a property expert. I'm a property data expert. Mm. And the problem I've got is we've got property experts who wake up one day and say, guess what, I've got a new badge today. I'm now a property research and property data expert <laughs> because I've had success with these last 10 properties. In a 12-month period where everything's yep. been rising. I I feel uncomfortable using the title property expert myself, you know. Um, I, I'm really struggling to <laughs> even know how to call, what to call myself, you know. Anyway, but that's... <laughs> yeah, and so I think that you've, we've got a lot of these people that are entering, entering the industry and suddenly they've had success as investors and now they're expert BAs mm. um, and ex- investment experts. And then we've got those who are experienced BAs that wake up overnight and now call themselves um, research experts. data right. experts. So there's this um, yeah, bit of um, false prophets out there, um, mm-hmm. uh, re- revelation stuff. Um, sorry, didn't mean, God, didn't mean to get all in. That was getting deep. Didn't and mean I know to get what all, you meant because of my... Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but hey, it feels like we're getting flooded by false prophets. I'm waiting for the trumpets. Um, um <laughs> Then, and we've got a Pentecostal Prime Minister, and I've been in trouble for mentioning this on the podcast yes. before. <laughs> and I, my disclaimer here, I grew up in a Pentecostal home, so I get all this stuff, I get all the fire and brimstone, and it's like end of days, yes. but I no longer subscribe to that stuff. Um, and I think the other one, and this is a good thing, but there's a, a negative to it, is that there's a, a proliferation of young people entering the game, mm. really young, great, talented people have studied engineering, whatever, and moved in and mm. there's some great great people the risk or the issue is that they're young and they haven't seen anything other than yeah. interest rates that are extraordinarily low rising housing markets they've never seen high unemployment they've never seen anything negative and i God, think we what sound just, like old farts <laughs> well, oh, I just back think, in the day <laughs> but if they if they're given if, if somebody's turning up to this person and giving them carte blanche over their portfolio Mm. or giving them five million dollars to spend you'd like to think that that young person is engaging an old bull yeah or or old cow sorry (laughs) i'm trying to (laughs) sorry doesn't work does it an old Um, cow that's just you know (laughs) (laughs) i tried no Uh, you calling me an old cow no no i just 
So (laughs) (laughs) it's wading into dangerous, dangerous uh, waters. No, I get what you're saying. An old head, shall we say? An old head is what I tried to say. Yeah, Yeah. and just to say, great, you've won the client. Great, you've got a lot of talent. Mm. Right? Unreal. But just make sure that you are doing it a balanced manner and you know i used to love the fact that in the mortgage insurance game we had some risk guys that were in their early 70s mm. and they had seen it and they were they were gold to me yeah they were just like oh please don't retire i'm, I'm i've still got so much to learn i go on yeah. road trips i had one old valuer that worked for me and, and after the, the, where there were big LMI claims all the way through, you know, wherever there was a natural disaster, you know, Childers mm. and up north there was, you know, the, the, the big storms and whatever in North Queensland 20-odd years ago. And we'd go through and do these big road trips. And I'd learned so much from this valuer. His name was Vince. And he was in his you know, mid-70s. So he'd seen everything. And then we mm. had other guys in, in, in the risk department that had uh, you know, seen co- the collapse of certain banks and whatnot. And, you know, they're not doomsday people. They're just balanced. They're pragmatists. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, my concern is that, you know, I, I, I'm not seeing enough of the old heads. Well, it's funny because we've had a few people <laughs> reach out wanting to become guests on the podcast, you know. Oh, I've, you know, in my 20s and I've bought five investment properties. I'm a, I'm a success story. And, and, or, you know, and we get these requests quite you know, quite commonly, and I'm like, well, I'm sorry, come back in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, and then we'll work out whether it's a success story or not, because, you know, it's not a number, it looks, the numbers game in some respects, but it's not the volume of property that you've managed to acquire in your 20s. You need to basically sit it out, it's a long game, and you need to work out whether you make good decisions in your 20s or not, and um, yeah, it's it's... It but is this a really is nothing new. This is nothing new because remember no. the old magazine, your investment property magazine, mm. go through the uh, airport and you, yeah, you know, and for the, you know for twenty years or fifteen years that was being published or whatever. Every month there was a new story of one of these, mm-hmm. you know, young guns picking, picking, talking about their portfolio and whatnot, and not all of them are here today. No, there, in fact, I, I did a. Uh, a presentation once some time ago and and i did a lot of research on those sort of people and there was one in particular i think it was their property investors of the year in 2012 Mm. and they'd actually the poor buggers i mean they'd basically gone and bought you know mining town revalued mining town revalued mining town like basically bought 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 money was easy to come by um crash in a massive heat they ended up with something like five million dollars worth of debt on assets that ultimately were worth two million dollars or something and you know they wrote a blog about it you know to say and you know and there's respected industry um experts shall we say that were the judges at the time that awarded them the, the award and it was really like you know the, basically, they got an award for risk taking, you know. Yes. <laughs> and so, once again, how can you measure the success before you know before the time is told whether they're um, whether all their calls are, are good calls or not? And um, yeah, they turned out well, to be very terrible. And that calls. is it, right? Mm. There's a lot of reward going out there now for risk taking. Yes. Okay. So keep going through your list. Um, um, what was the second one? Oh, the last. Uh, se- oh, I've got three to go. Weekend mm. auction results are you know, being way too used way too much as a barometer of the mm-hmm. market. They are one metric, but there's a lot more metrics. Yeah, and it's a metric that's um, specific to certain locations too. You know, very and I much think, v- you know we Melbourne use it because it's, 
And, and Sydney, inner city. I mean, it's relevant to my market, but as I said earlier, we look at other factors as well. So, yeah. 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 Um, big, bold headline grabbing. I think there's a, a lot of that going on. Yeah, mm. so it's clickbait, it's social media grab. So there's lots of big back. And the last one, this is an interesting one I've been observing, is um, in the interest of trying to create uh, national infographics or charts on on the state of the market nationally, I'm seeing people go to Coffs Harbour as the as an example mm. and pull out the suburb of Coffs Harbour and present its meeting because you can grab that from uh, CoreLogic quite easily. Yeah. And then present Coffs Harbour as the city and or region growth rate. Using the suburb. Using the suburb. Oh. And that's, you know, and we know that the problems of, of suburb, suburb mm. sample size and you get into some suburbs like a Coffs Harbour, you know, there's not a lot of units or there's not a lot of houses or whatever and you've got these challenges. So... Um, and the distribution of a lot of those places, like Coffs Harbour, they are not normal. So really risky stuff to go in and create your own fancy infographics, but then go and grab the suburb metric from Townsville or the suburb metric from Coffs and dump that in and make that representative of the broader area. Is that a rookie error or something a little bit more sinister? No, I think it's just somebody trying to create a quality infographic who isn't really doing it the right way, and mm. I don't think is malice. I think it's just a – I wouldn't even say it's a rookie error because some of the people doing this have been in it for a long time. Right. Uh, look, I know myself, you know, that uh, you know, I look back at some of my um, earlier investment um, presentations and I do cringe. Mm. <laughs> some of the things that I was putting forward because it seemed – logical and I found data to support um, what I was saying and subsequently I've realised I was wrong. And I'll give one example. Um, I look at the growth. I like to look at, in an area, I like to look at the history um, of price growth on a chart and yes. because I want to see a trajectory, right? And when you see a lot of volatility in a chart, it could be one of two reasons, really. And, and it could be that there's small sample sizes and there's quite a lot of variety and type of property. So, mm -hmm. you know, one year you might have 10 sales, the other year you got two, you know, and and also that you, know, you might have a like a beachside suburb where some properties on one side of the highway basically are beachside much more expensive than the other side. So, and if you've got small da data samples, then obviously that can, can skew that. And the other one is if you look at a mining town, you'll see a really lumpy growth curve because basically the you know, investors flooded in and then the mine closed and they all exited and so prices plummeted. So there's two main reasons, I guess, why you would see a really lumpy um, curve. Whereas I had this sort of theory that the further away you got from sort of a metro area, sort of the, the inner, you know, because I was pushing my own agenda here is when I was biased and looking for confirmation bias and I go oh well, it must be that the further out you go the more volatility is just purely by reason of distance and then I had to catch myself from trying to look for data that supported my theory as opposed to going oh that's my hypothesis the true way you approach research is I've got a hypothesis is that right or wrong and I found it was wrong and so but if I go back to I do, do still have a couple of my old PowerPoint presentations that actually shows that I was saying the wrong thing and I did uh, a little yeah. bit of selective data and so I've, I'm wrapping myself on that knuckles I've learnt my lesson I won't do it anymore we're still learning we're just yeah. we're all still learning 
and and I think the last I've done more learning in the last six months than than ever in this in the, in the last twenty years because what I've done, started to do is present data uh, in a different way, and it's given me some really fascinating new insights. And you know, to your point earlier about you know the big spreadsheets that I've been been presenting, I used to I used to sell these massive big spreadsheets to people, and I had really smart people buying it who just came back and said, I don't know how to interpret it. And that was the catalyst for me to create my online mapping software mm. with all the side panel information. Because it's like I realised that people don't know how to view data in a table. Mm. Um, it, is, it is overwhelming. <laughs> overwhelming. So, and, then, and then time series and then looking at time series trends in one view across different dimensions of data opens up whole new dimensions of understanding mm. um, and then to you know homage to Chris is you know the value of satellite images mm. you know and highlighting wow there's a mine there that didn't show up on the street map yeah. <laughs> that's a big ugly hole in the ground oh god yeah yeah there's so much you can learn from that yeah it's yeah look it's it's the whole data side of things is fascinating the more i learn about it the more interested in i am in it and and i think too what's really important is understanding what is important in data versus what isn't you know it's mm. like you know chasing infrastructure for argument's sake without putting into context of everything else that's happening in the area and um you know knowing the big picture so look this has been a really interesting chat and um I know that you and I are talking about, um, so I'm just going to put it out there for people if they're interested in, in finding out more about this. You and I have been talking about how can we help people um, choose a buyer's agent better because, you know, you've heard me rant about it enough and now, you, you know, I've heard you rant about, you know, really the misuse of data and, and um, finding a buyer's agent who will say no to you is almost the number one thing we need to be do, need to be looking at. But you and I are looking at ways in which we can help people actually locate good local specialists. Because, and once again, not every local specialist is, is good at being a buyer's agent either. So, so it's a massive challenge because then there could be good areas to buy in in this country where there are no local specialists as well. So this is a bit of an exercise that you and I are starting to work on. Um, if anyone has any suggestions, um, questions. Uh, interest in this then yeah reach out i mean you can reach out via the website elephantintheroom.com.au or you can actually send uh, an email to questions at the elephantintheroom.com.au you know we'll come back to you with more about what we're doing here but um you know it's a big challenge and i and i think that it's time we need to help give people a bit of a beacon uh, some guidance so they can make better decisions in this space because it's a, you know as I said the benefits of using a really good buyer's agent who knows how to use data in a way that really helps you and for you to understand data so that you can sort of see the the red flags and see the warning signs um, it's really critical to making good decisions if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west eastern suburbs or north shore my team and I can help you buy without regrets reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. Yeah.